Good. Well, I'm okay. to hear you talk. <clears throat> All right. Well, uh, I think we should probably go ahead and get started. The um, I think we're expecting some more to trickle in. Those who didn't play hooky today to uh, get out skiing. We're also um, waiting on our food, so when that comes in, we'll try unobtrusively to get it in here. Um, so um, welcome, everyone, to our uh, December last of 2016 AIDS seminars. Um, and today we have Dr. Tim Cavanaugh here to talk to us on quality health care for transgender and gender nonconforming persons. Um, Tim actually um, goes back to the area. He went to medical school here at Dartmouth some number of years ago. I don't, don't know how many. Uh, and then um, left from here and practiced uh, in family medicine after finishing his training at University of Virginia uh, in a, a couple of different settings. Uh, but then about 10 years ago, uh, became interested in uh, transgender health and has become uh, very actively engaged in, in medical care. Uh, he um, moved to the Fenway in November of 2012, so he's been uh, back in the Northeast for four years. Uh, and at the Fenway is the medical director for the transgender health program. Um, uh, it, the Fenway, um, I learned that there are approximately 2,300 uh, active transgender patients uh, in care. The model of care there, though, I don't know if you're going to be talking about it at all. Um, no. No. It's um, to actually <clears throat> expect that all of the primary care providers are uh, competent to provide uh, care to the transgender population rather than uh, it being a specialty business, though I'm sure that it involves a fair bit of specialty education for the providers. Um, so thank you very much for coming today, coming north. Um, Tim came up last night, hence he's here. A couple more um, uh, things I have to say. Uh, to receive credit for the program, you have to be here for at least 80% of the time, so make your bathroom breaks short. Uh, planning committee member Brian Marsh is a consultant for Gilead Biosciences. Um, he has had his conflict resolved by altering his control, my control, over the content about the products of services uh, of the commercial interest. Um, all other planning committee members and speaker for this program report no financial interest or relationship with any commercial entity or any conflict of interest regarding this activity, and no one refused to disclose. Do we? Um, Richard, have a CME code? We do. It's on the door? Yeah. G's. No, it's fine. G9S4, for those who want CME. All right, so let me hand it off to Dr. Kavanaugh. Thank you again. <clears throat> and thanks for having me. Um, again, I'm a family physician. I'm the medical director for trans health at Fenway, um, Fenway Health in Boston. Um, and I'm going to give a fairly broad overview of transgender health um, with some specific focus on the biggest problem, bigger problems that impact the health of transgender people, which includes HIV. Um, and so I'm going to jump right in. I have a lot of slides. Um, I'm not going to belabor them. I'm hoping that you'll be able to use them for reference later. Um, and maybe that's not. And maybe there's some technical difficulties here. Tim's the chief resident It's a job we can't quit. Now try it. just great. Thank you. So as, in regards to learning object, objectives, just um, in terms just kind of having some understanding of the nature and prevalence of gender and um, gender nonconforming identities, um, recognizing the barriers to health care for trans, transgender patients, I'll talk relatively quickly about um, gender-affirming medical therapies and then spend a little bit more time on discussing the issues that most impact the health and well-being of transgender persons. I don't have any relevant um, financial or personal um, conflicts of interest here. I will remind people that um, no medications that are used as feminizing or masculinizing therapy for transgender patients are FDA approved for that indication. 
I'm going to start with the case presentation. The name and some of the details here are, are changed, but this is a patient that I take care of in Boston. Boston is not a big urban center, um, but I, I, I think this patient is fairly representative of, so, of some of the patients that we take care of. So Carla is now a 32-year-old African-American trans female. Um, her first clinic visit to the clinic to Fenway Health was actually 10 years ago, and at the time she identified as a gay male and, in fact, wasn't even asked about her gender identity at those first visits. Um, Two years after her initial visit, she came out as transgender to her PCP um, because she was seeking hormone therapy. And she'd actually already been using injectable estradiol that she'd bought on the street for at least a year prior. Um, in the context of coming out, she reported that her family had punished her repeatedly for expressing feminine behavior um, when she was younger. Um, at this present time, she has been homeless off and on when not living with boyfriends over the past 10 years. She's had some short-lived retail jobs, but has often resorted to sex work because she's lost jobs due to, in her words, discrimination. Um, and she has often been without health insurance. She's been incarcerated several times, and actually one of those occasions was for trafficking in steroids when she was found carrying her own bottle of injectable estradiol. So transgender is a, really is an umbrella term. It refers to persons who are born with the genetic traits of one gender, but the internalized identity of another gender, and really encompasses a wide range of gender identities. I would say there really is, in some ways, some cultural and really generational sort of differences in how people sort of understand their gender identity. Older patients, so the patients that we still see coming in in their 40s, 50s, 60s, often have a very binary sense of gender identity where they tell this very very kind of traditional narrative of being born in the wrong body and seeing themselves, you know, male-bodied, but very, very, very clearly female and identify as male to female. Many, many of our younger patients really recognize that um, gender is not necessarily binary and, and identify some place in that sort of gender spectrum um, and as non-binary, sort of calling themselves genderqueer, um, gender non-binary, gender awesome is a term that I've heard people use. <clears throat> um, the numbers that we usually see thrown out as the sort of prevalence of, of transgender identity um, make it seem as though this is a rare condition. So these numbers primarily come out of Europe and primarily from Netherlands, and they tell us that about 1 in 12,000 males identify as female, um, and so they are male to female patients. And about 1 in 30,000 females, so female body patients, identify and see themselves as male, so are female to male. Now, the care in Europe and, and in the Netherlands clinic has historically been very binary. Um, there's one health, um, health center uh, clinic in the, um, in the Netherlands that's intended to see all of the transgender people in, in the country. Um, and when they come there, the expectation is that they will affirm their gender both with hormone therapy and with surgical therapy. About 85% of their patients undergo gender-affirming surgeries. Um, now, we know just from experience that not all transgender people or gender nonconforming people wish to kind of go that full route and sort of um, uh, transition what, what people might call fully or transition maximally. <clears throat> um, and in fact, there have been researchers that have looked at these numbers and kind of sort of uh, extrapolated back from these numbers and estimated that the um, prevalence is probably something more in 1 in 500. And in fact, the more recent surveys um, conducted in this country actually show that. So we see numbers somewhere between 1 in 1,000 and 1 in um, 300. Um, and I would tell you just from our experience and from my own personal experience, I know from the experience here up at the endocrinology clinic here, and I'm, I'm sure this sounds like a more reasonable number to you, right? Um, it really is kind of the thing where if you build it, they will come. <clears throat> I started practicing in a small community health center in Rhode Island when I first started doing trans health, and we expected we'd have sort of a, a small handful of patients, and within two years, I had about 200 trans patients. At Fenway Health, um, we are currently taking care of 2,300 active transgender patients, not just um, all patients that we've ever seen, but our, our active patients. 
The ideology of transgender identity or gender nonconforming identities is really not known. I mean, that's sort of the lowdown. There's been a fair amount of research into the genetics, um, brain anatomy and function, early hormonal influences, um, the influences of hormones in utero, um, and none of this research really kind of bears out any consistent findings. Um, what I will tell you is that the the um, research on brain anatomy, which looks at sort of structures, often sort of midbrain structures that have sort of sex differences in terms of size or neuronal vo um, volume, do show differences in the brains of transgender people. So the brains of transgender people do seem to kind of be somewhere in between those of people who identify as male or female. And there are people who have even suggested that we might use the size um, and neuronal volume of those structures to, to diagnose transgender identity. The problem is that there's so much overlap and so much splay in the people who identify as male or female that you really can't consistently say that, yes, this is a measurement that we can use to clearly define this, which for me really just argues for that sort of um, idea of a gender spectrum here. Um, there was a recent review of twin studies, so Milton Diamond, who has done a lot of the research on the um, genetics of sexual, uh, sexual identity and sexual attraction, um, also conducted sort of a meta-analysis and review of the um, case reports on twin studies and conducted his own survey online. And what he found is that if you were an um, identical twin and you identified as a trans female, there was a 30% chance that your uh, your twin also identified as trans female. If you were an identical twin and I identified as a trans male, there was about a 23% chance that your identical twin identify, also identified as a trans, uh, trans male. Two of those twin pairs were actually raised separately also. Um, the concordance rate amongst um, fraternal twins was something in the range of about 2.4%, um, which is, of course, much higher than what we see at that 1 in 1,000, 1 in 300. Um, so clearly, I think there's something biological going on here, right? Again, we like to talk about, so those of us who work in the field and have had a fair amount of experience talking and working with um, people who are gender nonconforming or, or identify as transgender, really like to talk about the gender spectrum. I like to say that insurance companies like boxes, nature loves a spectrum. Um, and, and we really do see that. And again, I think younger generations now have kind of the cultural language to sort of talk more about this. So at this point that I usually like to roll out the gender unicorn also. And one of the things I like about the gender unicorn here is when you look at gender identity, it actually it talks about spectrum, but it's not a spectrum with male on one end and female on the other. It really says, look, at we all have some degree of maleness or femaleness that we incorporate into our internalized gender identity. Um, I think that there is a heavy biological influence here that's also kind of influenced by environment factors and how you were raised, and also, of course, cultural factors. A lot of people argue that gender is really a cultural construct, right, with a strong bio biological influence here. So um, the other thing that's great about the gender unicorn is it really clearly tells us that gender identity doesn't is not the same as gender expression. So how people present to the rest of the world is not necessarily how they, how they see themselves inside, um, and that it's also very, very distinct from sexual attraction. So what I like to say is that really probably all of us kind of tend to mix this up a little bit, and we all have some aspects of our identity that are male and female to certain degrees. Um, most of us are lucky enough that we're able to kind of express that in ways that are not, not necessarily um, challenged in any significant way um, in the way we cut our hair or in the way we dress or the way we talk or speak or move or the, the activities that we partake in. But for people who identify as transgender, that internalized identity and what they see in front of themselves in the mirror is so different that it really causes a great deal of distress for that person. And part of that distress, certainly, I mean, some of it is internalized, but part of it is the fact that when they try to sort of express that identity in public or to the people around them, they are told that they are... that there's something unnatural about them. And I hope, again, that I'm, argue, I'm arguing effectively that this really is a natural occurrence. They're also met with a, a huge amount of denial and often um, resist, and a great deal of resistance and often violent resistance. So we do see that transgender people suffer huge degrees of discrimination.
So the National Transgender Discrimination Survey was a survey conducted in uh, between 2008 and 2010, published in 2011, of about 6,500 transgender people from across the country. It actually encompassed a fair degree of um, ethnic and geographic diversity. Um, the, um, I will tell you that the U.S. Trans Survey which is a survey that was conducted last year in 2015 um, and actually um, queried almost 28,000 transgender people um, has actually just come out. The, it was released just this past Thursday. Um, I have had a chance to sort of like skim through it and I've included a few stats here um, where I was able to. But in this 2011 study, um, survey. What we found is that 63% of transgender people experience some act of discrimination during their lifetime. Okay, and that could be anything from bullying in school, teacher bullying, physical assault, um, rejection by family, homelessness, loss of job. 23% um, of those patients experienced what was considered a catastrophic level of discrimination, meaning that they were impacted by three or more of these events. Barriers to care for transgender people. Some of these are sort of cultural um, rather than, than clearly medical. Um, trauma is a significant um, barrier to care. So um, transgender people um, report significant amounts of public harassment and physical violence. Um, I think, again, in the most recent, the U.S. Trans Survey, again, that was just published, about 45% of people said that they had experienced some form of harassment or violence within the past year. Um, legal challenges, challenges with identity documents. So if you see yourself as female and you are presenting as female, but your, ident your um, identification documents say male and your insurance says male, it's actually really, really difficult to sort of access health care. Um, and in fact, a lot of times what happens for people is that they, they come in presenting as, the, um, as their internalized gender, um, and in fact, at the, at, right at the front desk are um, met with sort of fumbling and, and discriminatory sort of behavior, and also um, risk being outed to other people in, um, in the waiting room. Um, we also see disproportionate rates of incarcer incarceration for um, transgender people, like my patient Carla. Um, economic disadvantages, it, disadvantage poses a, a significant barrier to health care. So in di depending on the surveys, anywhere between um, 15 to 30 percent of transgender people are unemployed. The, um, the 2015 trans survey, in that survey, 15 percent of people were unemployed as compared to 5 percent of the U.S. population at the time the survey was conducted. Many people earn less than $10,000 a year. Um, unemployment is associated with increased risk for homelessness, incarceration, sex work, drug use, HIV, and suicide attempts. Um, again, from the National Trans Transgender Discrimination Survey, so barriers to care are not necessarily just cultural and environmental, um, but we also see actually significant barriers to care within the medical setting itself. Um, so in this 2011 survey, 19% of patients said that they had been refused care because of their gen transgender or gender nonconforming status. I'm happy to say that the um, 2015 survey, that number was less. It was about 8% of people. Um, a significant number of people um, were subjected to harassment in the medical setting, so 28%. And 2% were actually victims of violence in a, in a medical office or a medical setting. Um, in the 2015 um, survey, that number was still 1% of people. So 1% actually had were, were um, pushed, shoved, beaten, um, and subjected to physical violence in a medical setting. Lack of provider knowledge is also a significant barrier to health care for transgender people. So in 2011, 50% of the sample reported that they had to teach their medical provider about transgender care. In the 2015 survey that was just released, uh, again, happy to say that that number is was reduced to 24% of those people. So these kind of efforts are making a difference, I think. Um, the number, again, we talked about sort of the, the prevalence of transgender identity, okay? Um, and I often say to people, you are taking care of transgender people whether you realize it or not, right? If one in, one in 300 to one in 1,000 people are trans, you certainly are seeing transgender people. Um, 
And the reason that you may not realize it is that many transgender people maintain their assigned gender role because they fear stigmatization. Again, in the 2015 survey, about 25% of people said that they avoided medical care because they were fearful of being discriminated against in a medical setting. So many don't discuss their transgender status with caregivers. In the survey that was just published, 33% said that they were not out to any of their medical providers. And only 40% reported that all of their health care providers knew that they were transgender. So I do want to make a distinction here between gender nonconformity, which is really just how the per, uh, a person's identity or role or expression differs from the cultural norms um, that we have regarding how people of a particular sex are, or gender are um, meant to sort of present and behave. A lot of us might be gender nonconforming. And gender dysphoria, which is really that the distress that's caused by that discrepancy between the internalized identity and, and the person's sex assigned at birth. And that may include and is associated with the gender role and their primary and secondary sex characteristics. So our focus as healthcare providers is really about alleviating that distress, that dysphoria. <clears throat> when we talk about uh, talk about treating gender dysphoria, we often talk about transition. Again, that's sort of a binary sense of, of, of what we are doing and how we are helping people. So we talk about transitioning from male to female or female to male. Um, more recently, we really talk, like to talk more about gender affirmation. So it, it affirming, using medications, surgery, um, and other treatments to actually affirm that patient's own individual gender identity. Um, and in fact, that may not involve um, medical treatments at all, um, but certainly it often involves social affirmation and legal changes like name, name changes. Um, after the election on November 8th, I can't tell you how many patients we've had call, like, like very pressingly needing and wanting to change their gender marker on their licenses and passport and social security. Many people um, prefer the term gender affirmation or gender confirmation over transition. When I first started doing this work about 10, 10 years ago, it was actually pretty difficult to find sort of protocols um, for um, medical, the medical treatment of transgender people. I'm happy to say that that's really different. Um, the, on the far right here are the standards of care for WPATH. Now, WPATH has um, been around for, in one form or another for about 40 years. Um, it was, grew out of the work of Harry Benjamin, who is a pioneering endocrinologist in this country who treated transgender people in the 30s, starting in the 30s and 40s. WPATH is an international organization of medical professionals, behavioral health professionals and also transgender people um, that set standards of care and have been setting standards of care since the mid-70s. Their latest standards of care came out in 2011 and really were a significant kind of turnaround from the previous standards of care. So the standards of care up until 2011 really kind of emphasized the need for kind of psychological assessment and psychological and psychiatric support for transgender people before they could access um, medical um, affirming care. Um, that really, and so it was really about people sort of proving their gender identity to the, um, the care providers. That really has turned around where the criteria really now say that the person just needs to be of, of legal age to consent, has a pervasive gender identity that is different from their, sec their sexual anatomy and their, um, their sexual um, uh, presentation um, biologically, um, and that they um, have no um, current um, that all of their medical and psychiatric issues are, are reasonably well controlled. Now we do get into some discussion, and that, and that is where we get into discussion around patients about what is reasonably well controlled. But I'll also tell you of our 2,300 patients, I would say perhaps 1% of those people um, really have, there's really some discussion and some concern around that, okay. Um, 2008, the Endocrine Society um, came out with their guidelines around um, treatment for um, transgender patients. And I do want to put a shout out to the Center of Excellence for Transgender Health out of UCSF. 
Um, they just updated their um, protocols for um, treating transgender people in June of this past year, uh, of 2016, and they are nerdily awesome, I would say. Um, really, really well-researched, really well-referenced. If you have any interest in sort of um, kind of doing more reading or, or um, exploration of this topic, I really encourage you to go out to their website. Um, when I talk about gender-affirming treatments, I always start talking about trans, trans men and um, hormone treatment for trans men. Um, masculinizing the body is actually quite a bit easier than feminizing a body, so testosterone tends to be very, very vigorous in its effects, and most people are, most, most trans men are very happy with the masculinizing effects of their treatment. treatment. Um, so to masculinize the body, we're using male, male hormones, testosterone, in several different formulations, and really using those at the doses that we treat um, cisgendered, so people who are not transgendered, cisgendered um, hypogonadal men. So really quite straightforward, and again, very effective. And what we see here, these are two separate slides. I couldn't get it all onto one slide. The, the changes that you see in red are permanent changes so that, that if the person decides to stop their hormone treatment at some point, those will not really regress, okay? So tip, basically what we see is we see um, sort of uh, what you would expect to see. And I, I tell people we're kind of putting them through a second puberty, right? Um, and so in general, it takes about two to three years, sometimes a little bit longer, up to five years for full um, or maximal masculinization um, if people choose to um, go that route. Um, and we see sort of uh, hair growth, so in a pattern that is very, very similar to what we see in pubertal boys. So first around the um, pubic areas and the underarms, thickening and coarsening of the hair, then on the chest and the rest of the body, and finally facial hair growth. Most guys are very, very intent on getting that facial hair growth because it's part of how they clearly present um, in public as masculine. Um, we see redistributions of, of body fat, so um, the fat stops, stops being deposited around the hips and buttocks and more around the midsection in a male pattern. Um, along with that, we also see an increase in muscle mass, particularly in upper body muscle mass, so that the body takes on a different form. We also see a deepening of the voice, um, and that happens fairly quickly for most trans men and a cessation of menses, okay? Um, if you are male identified and in a male body, um, having that monthly reminder that, that you are a male in a female body is particularly distressing for people. And so one of the, one of the chief aims of um, hormone therapy early on is that cessation of menses, which typically takes place sometimes with the first injection of testosterone or the first application of testosterone, certainly by six months. For trans women, um, a, little, a little bit more difficult, actually. So to feminize a body that has already seen years of testosterone, uh, the influences of testosterone, can be difficult. So hormone therapy does not change the bony structure of the body. It doesn't change the, the square jaw of a male face. It doesn't change that sort of broad-shouldered, broad-chested chested anatomy. Um, the, the feet and the hands, the, the bony anatomy of the feet and hands does not change. Um, the Adam's apple um, that is developed does not change. <clears throat> and so, Adequately and satisfactorily feminizing a body can be a challenge for some patients. Um, but in that regard, I would say to you that sometimes that's not exactly the point, all right? So when we are providing feminizing hormone therapy and estrogen therapy to um, female, uh, trans female patients and sort of affirming that gender, um, you know, there are, there are effects that we don't completely understand and don't know about, certainly um, central nervous system effects, even sensory effects of hormone therapy. But there is something about just having estrogen in the system and affirming that gender identity that I will tell you, I've, I've seen patients that the first time I met them, I really was concerned about how they were going to, to pass, um, as people sometimes put it, or to blend, as we like to say. Um, and I will tell you, a year to two years into their hormone therapy, um, the patient walking in the door was a very self-assured woman. Um, so some of it isn't just about the physical changes, but also about sort of the mental and psychic changes that occur with hormone therapy. 
when we're feminizing the female body, we're using estrogen, the female hormone, of course, um, and need to use it in doses that are two to four times the doses that we might use for postmenopausal hormone replacement in order to, to create feminizing changes in the body and also to suppress testosterone levels we need to use fairly large doses. Although what we're trying to achieve are serum levels of estradiol that are in the average range, sort of the average range for uh, menstruating females. Now, in order to adequately suppress testosterone, so in, in order to feminize a body, you also need to suppress testosterone production and prevent the continued masculinizing effects of testosterone. The doses of estrogen that we have to use for most patients to do that would be exceedingly high. Um, we would all be concerned about um, side effects. And so for most patients, we are also using an anti-androgen medication. In this country, we primarily use spironolactone. Spironolactone, you probably know, is a, is a diuretic agent, but it also has an effect. Um, it suppresses testosterone production. It acts at the testosterone receptor um, uh, to block androgen effects, and it also has weak estrogenic effects itself. Um, in Europe, they primarily use saproterone acetate. That's a progestin. Um, so most of their patients are on saproterone acetate uh, plus estradiol. Saproterone acetate is not available in this country. Saproterone acetate as a progestin also has some thrombogenic effect, and I think that's part of the reason that we see higher rates of thromboembolic disease in uh, patients, uh, the patient cohorts that are repeated, uh, reported on in Europe, and I'll talk briefly about that later. Um, Lupron, so, so GnRH agonists, um, is also a very effective way of suppressing um, testosterone production in transgender women and, and estrogen production in trans males. It's what we use for adolescents to block puberty prior to um, starting cross-sex hormone therapy and really actually is a, a completely reasonable alternative medically for trans women. Um, the problem is that it is exceedingly expensive. Most insurance plans won't cover it and it requires repeated visits to the clinic for injections. Um, some patients really will come in asking for progesterone. So, of course, in the, the cis female body or the natal female body, um, the ovaries are making both estrogen and progestin. Estrogen really is, in, in the early pubertal um, development of cis women, um, estrogen is the primary hormone that feminizes the body. Progestin really has to do with um, sort of stimulating ovulation um, and also um, kind of promoting um, milk production uh, during pregnancy. Um, there are a lot of people, both, both providers and patients, who believe that progestin helps with breast development, helps to provide sort of a fuller, rounder breast, and helps with the development of the nipple complex. There are no studies who, that, that prove or disprove this, um, although the studies also do not show any significant negative effects. We worry about worsening depression with some progestins. Um, also weight gain, although a lot of patients actually are happy to have that weight gain because it tends to round out and feminize the body somewhat. Um, in the Women's Health Initiative, patients who are on progestin and um, estradiol also had higher rates of cardiovascular events and breast cancer, although most of those patients were on Premarin, so conjugated estrogen, which we do not use currently uh, for uh, transgender affirming hormone therapy, um, and also we're on Provera. So how we, you know, whether or not we can extrapolate the experience of women in their 50s and 60s um, who are on hormones that we actually don't, hormone regimens that we actually don't use for transgender women and sort of predict the risk of breast cancer and cardiovascular disease in trans women um, getting uh, affirming hormone therapy is really uh, fairly dubious. I think in the field, it's, the current feeling is it's probably reasonable for patients who want to try progestin to use it for at least short periods of time to try to promote better breast development. <clears throat> Feminizing effects, again, all on one slide. The, the effects in red are um, sort of permanent effects. Breast development is probably what most trans women focus mostly on because that is how people present as female as they're moving about the world. Um, and breast development tends to start relatively early, three to six months, and progresses through the first three months, three, three months of therapy. 
Now, most trans women will not develop a full Tanner 5 fully developed breast. Most women uh, will de develop a Tanner 3 or Tanner 4 breast, um, an A or a B cup. Even a nicely developed breast on the broad male chest um, can, can be does not necessarily appear satisfactory for a lot of trans women. And so there are a fair number of trans, trans women in the surveys that are done. About 60% of trans women express dissatisfaction with their breast development and, and plan or hope to have breast augmentation. Um, we also see general changes, so decrease in testicular volume and decrease in sperm production. We see sort of opposite to what we see in our trans male patients. We see fat, um, fat distribution away from the midsection and over the hips and buttocks. We see a loss of muscle, um, muscle mass, particularly in the upper body, so the body takes on a more feminine form. Um, we do see some softening of the skin and decrease in terminal hair growth, although for most trans women that is not adequate for them to um, really present um, the way they want to as female, and so most trans women will also undergo some sort of hair treatment, usually with electrolysis or laser therapy. Um, hormone therapy um, can slow down cessation of, um, can, can stop and slow down scalp hair loss, but probably doesn't result in regrow regrowth. It does have no effect on the vocal cords, and so the, the low pitch of the male voice doesn't change with hormone therapy. And so most trans women will require some sort of vocal therapy or learn how to modulate their voice themselves. Cross-sex hormone therapy is effective. So a 2010 meta-analysis that looked at a number of studies um, on hormone therapy showed that 80% showed improvement in their gender dysphoria, 78% improved psychological symptoms, 80% with improved quality of life, and 72% with improved sexual functioning. Um, further challenges that, we're, that we are looking at and facing now in regards to cross-sex hormone therapy is how we affirm the gender of adolescents who identify as transgender. Um, those protocols are really um, starting, that's, that's probably been the big topic of discussion uh, in the field over the past five to ten years. Um, Norm Spack at, at Boston Children's Hospital was really one of the pioneers in doing this. Um, right now what we do is we stop pubertal development at Tanner Stage 2 with Lupron, with um, GnRH agonist, allow that the adolescent um, two or three years to sort of process their gender identity and to figure out what they want and whether or not they want to proceed with gender-affirming um, hormone therapy, and then start starting cross-sex hormone therapy in a body that has not already been masculinized or feminized and develop those secondary se sexual characteristics. We can start cross-sex hormone therapy in that body and avoid the need for some of the surgical interventions later on that we often perform in adult patients. Um, we also are really struggling with how to best manage patients who don't identify on a gender binary. So the protocols really are very, uh, were developed with a very binary sense of gender identity. Um, we have lots of patients who come in who really want to identify, kind of present um, and affirm their, their bodies in ways that are more androgynous. Um, we have a number of trans women who still are interested in um, using their penises and achieving erections for sexual intimacy. Um, in those patients, we often use lower doses um, or use or treat with hormone therapy for uh, um, sort of uh, limited periods of time to achieve the kind of effects that, the permanent effects that patients want and desire and then stop their hormone therapy. Um, another one of the challenges is that there's really limited study data on the effects of different hormone formulations. So if we're looking at topical hormone, topical estrogen versus oral estrogen tablets versus injectable estradiol, we don't really know how those compare in their effectiveness. Same thing with the different formulations of testosterone for trans guys. And there is no large U.S. patient cohort. So most of the long-term data that we have on the health of transgender patients comes out of cohorts out of Europe, primarily the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, we are working, and, and in particular, there are people at Fenway and at UCSF and at Cal and Lord in New York who are really working on trying to put some U.S. patient cohort that we can follow over time together. 
Again, I'm going to talk about gender-affirming surgeries uh, relatively briefly. Surgery has been proven to be an effective intervention for patients with gender dysphoria. Um, patient satisfaction is generally quite high, um, even when patients' when patients' um, results aren't always as perfect or as good as as we might want them to be. They still have a fair amount of satisfaction and also benefits in regards to psychological, social, and sexual functioning. Um, the, the biggest problem with surgery is probably that there, that historically, that insurance has not paid for surgery um, for most patients, and the surgeries themselves are exceedingly expensive. <clears throat> so for trans men, gender-affirming surgeries, most guys will want to have some sort of chest reconstruction, so removal of the breast, although not all of the breast tissue. We leave a little bit of breast tissue in order to um, kind of aesthetically contour the, the male chest. Um, hysterectomy and oophorectomy, um, we don't really know for sure what the long-term effects of um, testosterone therapy are on the uterus and the ovaries, and so a number of patients, for both for medical reasons and also for psychological reasons, will uh, pursue hysterectomy, removal of the uterus and the ovaries. And then general reconstruction with either phalloplasty, with the, which is construction of a penis, or metodioplasty, which is using the enlarged clitoris as the phallus, um, often coupled with scrotoplasty and the use of um, testicular implants. And I'm not sure what happened with the clicker again. Okay, thank you. All right, this, thank you. So these are just examples of three patients here who have had chest reconstruction. You can see actually very, very, from a lot of guys and most guys, a very successful surgery. Um, having, having breasts, and again, breasts are often the way that we sort of identify people as female when we're sort of walking down the street. So to be a trans guy and to have breasts um, can be particularly dysphoric and counterproductive to their transition and their gender affirmation. Um, and so most guys will want to have chest reconstructive surgery. These are some examples of metodioplasty, so using the enlarged clitoris um, basically to create a phallus. Um, that often also is involved with sort of extension of the um, ureter along the underside of the, of the phallus so that the, um, the guy is allowed, um, able to stand and pee at a urinal, uh, which is very important when guys are using the bathroom of their choice. Um, and these guys have all had scrotoplasty with testicular implants. And then these are examples of phalloplasty. So radial forearm phalloplasty is actually taking a, a graft, a free graft from the forearm, and essentially a roll of, of skin inside a roll of skin and creating a penis that way, again, usually with, um, with testicular implants and scrotoplasty. Um, the, the nerves um, and the blood vessels are connected to the pu uh, pubic and pudendal and the clitoral nerve and blood vessels so that there is some erotic sensation in the phallus um, as well as skin sensation. Um, this is an example of an abdominal flap, so a flap that has been rotated from the lower abdomen, um, a, so a flap that remains connected to its nerve supply and its uh, vascular supply, and then is rotated, um, tunneled underneath the tissue and rotated into place um, to create the phallus. For trans women, augmentation mammoplasty, so breast augmentation, again, is sought or at least desired by a large number of trans women um, in order to increase the size of the breast on that male, um, that broad um, masculinized chest. Um, vaginoplasty is what we typically think of as sex reassignment surgery for trans women. Um, some guys will choose to undergo orchiectomy without vaginoplasty, so at least to remove the testicles so that they no longer have to worry about the endogenous production of testosterone and fighting that as they continue to affirm their gender. Tracheal shave, so shaving off the Adam's apple, can actually go a long way to sort of helping a, a trans woman to present more as more feminine. And facial feminizing surgery, which I will tell you, even with insurance policies that are actually pretty good about um, providing for trans care and even surgical care, most policies do not cover facial feminizing surgery. But facial feminizing surgery really actually, in, for some trans women, is the most important surgery they have because, again, it really kind of speaks to their ability to kind of move, move about the world in a way where they are identified as female rather than as, ma as male. 
These are just some uh, number of before and after pictures of people who have undergone um, facial feminizing surgery. So generally this in involves sort of um, recontouring the brow so that the brow is not as prominent, recontouring the jaw so that the jaw is less square and more rounded, often involves sort of kind of uh, raising, the, raising the brow up a little bit relative to the eyes, um, and usually some nasal reconstruction also. But you can see here from these pictures that, that uh, this really can have a tremendous effect on a patient's appearance. <clears throat> these are some examples of vaginoplasty from a number of different surgeons. I will tell you vaginoplasty, in terms of it, its aesthetic effect, is incredibly successful and, and really does very, very well for most trans women. Um, the first time, the first patient I ever saw who kind of came in after vaginoplasty um, and, and was having a little bit of discharge and she asked me to um, examine her, I, I was really astounded at, at the effect. I, you know, I, there are actually stories of transgender women who never do come out to their primary care providers and even have pelvic examinations and their, their medical providers do not know that they have actually transition, transitioned from male. These are just a couple slides. I'm going to move through these quickly. But really, these slides just speak to the fact that, again, although a number of these, so for trans women, vaginoplasty, most, most women will want, have had or want to have someday. Same thing for breast augmentation, but not all. So not all gender nonconforming and trans-identified patients necessarily want to undergo surgical affirmation. Um, same thing with trans guys. Again, most will want some, some sort of chest reconstruction, um, but, but not all of them. Most will want hysterectomy. For, for phalloplasty and metoidioplasty, a very, very, only a very small number of trans men have ever had um, phalloplasty or metoidioplasty. Part of that is the, the cost and the expense. It's a multi-stage procedure, which quite honestly is grueling to go through. And it has a fairly high complication rate. About 33% of patients will suffer some sort of complication, generally involving um, ureteral fistulas um, and difficulty with urination and strictures. Um, and, and there is sort of a belief in the community that, that really we haven't we haven't kind of achieved the sort of results that we would like to have with this surgery, although people are working hard on that. I want to just touch base really quickly on detransitioning because, you know, there's actually been a, and there comes up from time to time, um, a lot of arguments in, in sort of the lay literature and sometimes in the medical literature about are we making mistakes and, and how many people sort of regret their, um, their gender affirmation or their gender transition. And in fact, the, the rates of regret are extremely low, less than 1%. This is from the 2015 survey. And in that survey, they asked, have you ever detransitioned? And they defined that as going back to living as the sex assigned at birth, at least for a while. 8% of people had detransitioned at some point in their life. So it had kind of gone back to living um, to their, um, at their gender or their sex assigned at birth. Um, but for most of those people, that was a temporary measure. So currently, 62% of the people who had detransitioned were back to sort of living full time in the gender that was different from their sex assigned at birth, so their, their preferred gender. Now, I think for some people, the process for them in sort of kind of understanding and discovering their gender identity is sort of moving through the, the affirmation process, and that, that's part of what helps them to sort of better understand their individual identity. So a lot of people end up sort of detransitioning and then finding, finding a way to live and present and sort of maintain their their treatment in a way that better reflects their individual, um, their individual gender identity. In the 2015 survey, only 5%, and that was just 0.4% of the overall sample of people who had undergone some sort of gender-affirming medical treatment, only 5% only of the people who had detransitioned said that they did so because they realized that transition was not for them. So only 0.4% who had undergone some form of gender-affirming medical therapy said that, no, this was a mistake. Okay. Most of the people who detransitioned did so because of pressure from family, from friends, from loved ones, pressure within their job. Just they couldn't, they couldn't negotiate the process of transitioning, and so it was easier for them to just go back to living um, in their, as their um, sex assigned at birth. Um, I'm going to talk, talk a, a little bit here about just health outcomes. 
<clears throat> and here's where we'll start to talk about some of the HIV stuff here. Um, again, most of, the, most of the information that we have in regards to long-term health outcomes come from Europe and primarily from the Dutch cohort. Um, the the uh, physicians who work in the, the clinic in the Netherlands and Amsterdam um, who have been following patients since the 1970s. So um, the cohort, when they last reported in 2011, um, the cohort had been followed on average for about 20 years. Um, there were about 1,200 trans female patients and about 800 trans male patients. Um, and what they found in terms of long-term morbidity and mortality was that for the most part, um, masculinizing gender-affirming um, gender treatment, so treatment with testosterone was really very, very, very safe. Now, what we see with testosterone treatment, it does, in a number of guys, cause some polycythemia or erythrocytosis, so an increase in the red blood cell volume, which, which can be problematic, at least in theory. Um, I can talk more about that if anyone wants to ask. Um, it also does change um, some of the uh, so cholesterol levels and homocysteine levels and things that we associate with cardiovascular risk. I think really what we do is we just create a cardiovascular profile that's, that is a male profile rather than a female profile, okay? Despite some of those changes, there is no increased risk of cardiovascular disease in these, um, in the cohorts of trans male patients in Europe, okay, or of any other significant health outcome. These guys are very, very healthy, okay. For trans women, there actually was in the 2011 report, they reported a 50% higher mortality rate than the general population. Now, we worry about sort of the thromboembolic effects of estrogen therapy in trans women. And there are small effects on that, although with the form of estrogen that we use now, estradiol, and especially for women who use transdermal estradiol, the effect is probably very, very, very small, okay? But there were some small increases in cardiovascular disease and thromboembolic disease in this patient cohort. However, the real driver of the increase in mortality rate was an increase in mortality due to AIDS, suicide, and drug-related deaths. So it wasn't hormone therapy or gender-affirming therapy at all that kind of drives mortality for trans women. It's these things that are really associated with sort of the discrimination and, and stigmatization of their gender identity. And I'm going to talk about that here in a moment, but I just want to go back to Carly here for a minute. So Carla does have a history of relapsing substance abuse. So initially with alcohol, marijuana, and cocaine, she later started using intranasal and then IV heroin and has really struggled with her IV heroin use for a number of years. She'd been in and out of recovery programs over the past seven years. In 2006, she was diagnosed as HIV positive, and that occurred actually before she came out as trans. Um, although she was still in a lot of settings presenting as female at that time. Um, she's been on and off different antiretroviral therapy um, medications, um, and and has her adherence has not been good. And as a result, she has developed multiple drug resistance over time. Her CD4 at the time of diagnosis was 713. Her lowest CD4 was 57, and that was just a year and a half ago. And that was after she had sort of. Um, relapsed into her, her IV heroin use, and she'd been using for about a year or so after that, and she had stopped using her um, antiretroviral medication. She has a history of PCP, of mycobacterium infection, and of disseminated herpes zoster. She also was diagnosed as hepatitis C positive in 2010 and failed a short course of interferon therapy at that time. In addition to these medical issues, she's had a history of domestic violence in relationships. She's been assaulted a number of times, um, with, and at one time, uh, one of those assaults resulted in facial fractures re requiring surgical reconstruction. Um, her assaults have been related to her transgender identity. So again, I want to go back to these, to these three things, so HIV, drug use, um, and depression and suicide that are the three, really those are the three big things that impact the health of our trans, our trans female patients and our transgender patients, both trans males also. So HIV infection, uh, in uh, 2008, a meta-analysis of a number of different studies showed that the average, average rate of HIV infection amongst trans female populations was almost 30%. And in African American women, that rate in some studies approached almost 60%. 60% of people with, with, who are HIV infected. And the death rate due to AIDS is 30 times higher amongst transgender women 
than amongst other people who are HIV infected. Um, now, those, those studies were primarily conducted in urban populations of transgender women, and so they probably do sort of overestimate the general rate of HIV infection. And so the National Transgender Discrimination Survey in 2000, 2011, this was self-reported incidence of HIV infection, but there was a 2.64% overall rate of HIV infection. That compared to 0.6% in the general population. Um, I just, I rushed this morning actually to include some of these things from the 2015 study. Um, somewhat encouraging, that rate is down to 1.4% overall self-reported HIV incidence amongst 28,000 trans, um, transgender women uh, or transgender persons. Um, that is still, so the, the rate in the U.S. population has also dropped to 0.3%. So we're still seeing rates of HIV infection in a very general transgender population that are four times the rates of the general population in the United States. Um, again, the rates are higher for trans women, um, particularly if women are involved in sex work, and particularly amongst women of color. So again, these rates, self-reported rates in a very large cohort of 25% of black trans women who are HIV infected. These are just two different studies, one from 1997 and another 13, year, 13 years later in 2010, again, seeing these very high rates of um, HIV disease. Um, one of the things I really want to point out on this slide is that a lot of patients are not engaged in care, right? So in the 1997 study, 50% were not receiving HIV-related uh, medical care. Um, in the 2010 study, 87% um, said that they had seen a doctor, 71% that they had taken meds, but only 65% were currently taking meds. Again, happy to report that in the 2015 self-reported um, survey, that rate is about, 80, again, 87% of patients who are currently engaged in care and 84% who are actually taking, their medi taking medications. Not all of them with great adherence, but 84% taking medication. <clears throat> um, when we talk about HIV risk and trans, trans patients, we're often talking about trans women and often talking about trans women of color. But I do also, again, just want to point out here, so the HIV prevalence for trans men is generally reported as relatively low, about 2% in the study from 2001 um, in the National Transgender Discrimination Survey from um, 2011, the rate was less than 1%. Um, but when you survey trans men about sexual risk behaviors, a lot of them, a lot of them are engaging in both unprotected vaginal sex and also unprotected anal sex. So it may be that that lower rate of, pre uh, those lower reported um, prevalence rates may just be an issue of lower screening and underreporting. Um, factors that are linked to HIV risk amongst trans women. Certainly, gender identity discrimination in studies has been linked to condomless anal receptive sex to depression and substance abuse, both of which are associated on their own with higher rates of HIV infection. Um, we also see that many, many, many STI and HIV um, campaigns and programs do not include transgender women in those programs. Um, and for a lot of transgender women, HIV um, prevention is really a low priority. Their priorities are survival and really and, and keeping themselves safe often which means sort of getting themselves into relationships where um, their, their gender is affirmed, um, but relationships that, that often can be exploitative, but, but provide some degree of safety and, again, gender affirmation for them. And so where, where if their partner insists that they will not use condoms, um, the patient, for fear of losing that relationship, kind of goes along with that. Um, Again, behavioral risk factors, high rates of sex work in some studies, more than 40% of um, trans women have resorted at some point in time to sex work, and that has to do with discrimination and loss of employment or unable to be employed. Lower rates of condom use, again, that often has to do with the patient's primary partner and, and, and how the primary partner sort of sets um, kind of determines the relationship because the patient is afraid to sort of make waves in the relationship. Um, 
a lot of trans women, women who live in more kind of chaotic settings and, and more economically disadvantaged settings use injectable estradiol because it's easier. They don't have to worry about patches or carrying around bottles of pills. Um, and so there may be needle sharing that goes on with hormones. Um, a lot of women also inject silicone. Again, this is sort of a separate topic that we can go into that would take some time. But inject silicone, um, sometimes industrial-grade silicone, in fact, into like their hips, their breast, even into their face in order to kind of round out and contour and make themselves appear more feminine. Um, that often occurs at, at what people call pumping parties particularly amongst women of color, especially Latina women in urban, in large urban settings, and very frequently they're sharing the needles at those pumping parties. Um, biologically, a lot of trans women engage in anal receptive sex and unprotected condomless anal uh, receptive sex. We don't really know what the HIV risk is from a, a condomless um, sex with a neo-vagina. So the neo-vagina typically is actually, so the most common procedure is a penile inversion procedure. So it's actually squamous epithelium that lines the vagina. Um, but there are incisions there, incision lines. A lot of times trans women will have granulomatous tissue along those incision lines. And we don't know how that contributes to risk. We do see increased rates of other STIs, so syphilis, HPV, hepatitis B and C, herpes, and chlamydia that may, again, increase the risk for HIV infection. Um, substance abuse, again, also increases HIV risk. So this is from a 2014 study of trans women in LA that showed that recent stimulant use with methamphetamine or cocaine was associated with self-reported HIV infection, and that the lifetime self-reported injection drug use or hormone misuse, so injecting hormones that they buy on the street or get from their friends, sharing needles, also um, resulted in a markedly increased rate of HIV infection. Previous and ongoing trauma also stands out as a significant risk factor um, for HIV risk and can be particularly clinically challenging. So again, we were kind of talking about the surveys here. 30 to 60 percent of patients have experienced some sort of physical violence in the past. 27 to 46 percent, depending on the survey of trans women, are the victims have been the victims of sexual assault. Um, in the 2015 survey, 54 percent had been victims of intimate partner violence. Most of the violence was attributable to their gender identity or, or their expression. Um, in the 2015 survey, um, being the victim of violence was significantly, um, significantly correlated with whether or not the person felt as though they presented well and whether people knew that they were trans. So if you were, if you, if you didn't pass as well, you were more likely to be the victim of violence. Also though, people who are disabled and people of um, ethnic minorities who are also trans were more likely to be the victims of violence. Um, so transgender people are at high risk for, ver again, verbal, physical, and sexual victimization. Again, just to reiterate a point, 63% have experienced some serious act of discrimination. Um, HIV rates are also associated with depression and suicide, and suicide is also one of the major risk factors for mortality and major causes of mortality amongst trans women. Okay. Suicide rates are phenomenally high amongst transgender people. Um, the 2015 survey demonstrates similar numbers here. So in, in some surveys and in many surveys, up to 40% of transgender and gender variant individuals have reported attempting suicide, okay? Not just thinking about it, but attempting suicide. And the suicide death rates were six times higher than the general population in the Dutch cohort, okay? That 40% um, rate of suicide attempt is about 10 times the rate in the general population in the United States. In the 2015 survey, 33% of people who said that they had attempted suicide at some point in their life did so by the age of 13, okay? This is a huge problem. Um, of course, suicide is, is associated with depression, and we do see much higher rates of depression amongst both trans women and trans men. Um, again, anywhere in the range of 55 to 62 percent of, of patients will report that they are depressed or have been depressed at some point in their life. Um, substance abuse is associated with depression, 
associated with HIV infection and associated with uh, suicide risk. And the rates of substance abuse also are very, very high amongst transgender patients. So the rate of drug-related deaths in trans women in the Dutch cohort was 13 times higher than that of the general population. And these, sur these surveys, again, from one from 1999, one from 2008, and another report from 2014 all show very, very high rates of alcohol use, marijuana misuse, um, amphetamine and um, stimulant use, um, and um, injection drug use or illegal hormone use. Um, most patients reported that substance use was a means of coping with stigma and discrimination and other hardships. And again, really just to kind of reiterate this point, psychological abuse amongst transgender women um, as a result of their non-conforming gender identity is associated with three to four times higher odds of alcohol, marijuana, or cocaine use, eight times higher odds of any drug use. And amongst youth, gender-related discrimination is associated with increased odds of alcohol and drug use. Again, in the National Transgender Discrimination Survey, 35% of trans people um, who had experienced some sort of harassment or violence said that using substances was a way to cope with, their, um, with the mistreatment that they suffered. And this slide just speaks to, again, you know, we, we see these sort of interconnected factors here, right? Um, very, very high rates of homelessness, very high rates of, um, of substance abuse. And this is just sort of the, demonstrates the interaction between um, homeless, homelessness and substance abuse for youth. Um, this is actually a relatively recent survey. So in 452 transgender adults in Massachusetts, um, the, the odds of having a substance abuse disorder uh, and a treatment history for substance abuse disorder were associated with violence, PTSD, um, discrimination in public accommodation, low income, unstable housing, and sex work. So substance abuse disorders are increasingly in viewed, viewed as a, the downstream effects of gender, um, chronic gender minority stress. And again, the co-occurrence with post-traumatic stress symptoms is highly prevalent, and substance abuse is a common avoidance strategy for post-traumatic stress. So we talk a lot in, in HIV circles about syndemics, right? And we certainly see that amongst our trans female patients, that there are all these factors that lead to and eventually kind of downstream kind of result in these higher HIV infection rates and, and all influence each other. I want to finish up just by talking very, very briefly about PrEP. Okay. Um, in 2015, Project Life Skills. Project Life Skills was, a, was a, a, an HIV intervention in young trans women that was conducted at Fenway Health and also a, um, count, um, Howard Brown Clinic in Chicago. Okay. It enrolled 180 trans women between 18 and 29 in ongoing HIV prevention um, where they were, again, as the name implies, where they were taught about, about life skills and about negotiating sort of their lives and their sexual, sexually intimate relationships um, in a way that was sort of reinforcing and, and was all about sort of peer, um, peer counseling and peer support. Um, but within this study, they analyzed the factors that were associated with PrEP indication. And 62% of these patients met the indications for PrEP, so that they, they um, had had recent um, condomless anal sex partners, that they were at higher risk for, for HIV, and that they, when, when discussed, they were interested in PrEP. But only 5% ever reported taking PrEP. Um, and that was associated, that sort of lack of sort of intervention and sort of self-advocating and taking PrEP was associated with low self-esteem scores. So despite the high indication, there was very low self-awareness self and self-use. In the IPREX trial, so Maddie Deutsch, who works out of UCSF um, and is probably the, the preeminent um, physician working in trans health in this country, um, she looked at the IPREX trial, did a new analysis, and identified 339 trans women who were included in the IPREX trial. Um, unfortunately, in IPREX, um, the Truvada did not show a protective effect. So amongst the trans women taking Truvada, 11 um, seroconverted um, and were HIV positive as compared to 10 in the placebo group. But none of those 11 women who seroconverted had detectable le levels of drug in their system. 
okay? Compared to MSN, trans women had lower drug levels in their blood and were less likely to take PrEP on a daily basis. And interestingly, while, while in men who have sex with men, um, whose reported sexual practicing um, included things that put them at the highest risk, risk of contracting HIV, 